Whatever comes out of these gates, we've got a better chance of survival if we work together. Do you understand? What is your suggestion, Master Jedi? These allegations are false. return of the Babble Bubble. I have been receiving messages upon messages for months now asking, when will the show be back? And by messages upon messages, I mean one person asking me in passing at the end of a conversation. But I appreciate it nonetheless. Yes, life has gone by quite busily over the past few months. You know, in the time since last episode of this came out we've seen a roller coaster of emotions i've seen a roller coaster of emotions uh, professionally uh, personally and there's just been a lot of distractions going on i mean it looks like oh what does a quote unquote post-covid environment look like uh when in actually actuality we were still thoroughly in it delta has come back but i'm glad i was able to just enjoy some time um, living in society without worrying for a moment. Um, now I'm under back a pseudo lockdown of sorts, self-imposed, self-imposed, because um, this is Texas we're talking about, so I don't even begin to believe that something different is going to happen in terms of the state stepping in and locking things down and putting on masks making vaccine requirements. But please get vaccinated, people, if you have not already. Um, But over the course of this time period, I still have been thinking very much about the show, where I would like it to go, what I would like to do for it. Uh, You know, a lot of the very ambitious plans for season two of the Babble Bubble, of the new look Babble Bubble, which is how 2021 started, have kind of fallen apart. And you know what, that's okay, because this is a show that's recorded, produced, and edited exclusively by me, and so I can do whatever I want for it. You know, I don't have a Patreon, I don't have paid subscribers, so if you're someone who liked the new look, Babble Bubble, we're hoping for more things like that, um, you know, I'm sorry. That being said, though, you know, I'm not returning to the the Star Wars podcast that this once was. Uh, You know, I am still planning to focus on 1995 to 2005, and that is that turn of the millennium culture, but in terms of some of, like, the cool cross- collaborations I had with other artists, it just comes to a time thing and a cost thing that it just doesn't look reasonable at this particular point. Um, But, you know, like I said, in the interim, since the one Yu-Gi-Oh! episode came out in in May to now, I've toyed with a bunch of episode ideas, I've done a bunch of little recordings, uh, some with other people, some with by myself, and I just decided rather than try to flesh those out into a full episode... Um, each, I was just going to kind of have a combination of the greatest missed hits. So these are things that I had recorded snippets of, uh, just some three topics that I was hoping to be part of a greater 
journey. <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, they didn't flesh out. But I think there's some points that are, are worth sharing and worth diving into. So I'm going to go ahead and compile on that here. So this is the greatest missed hits, the lost tapes, so to say. Hope you all enjoy. What if we run into the Indians? That's what guns are for. Now arm yourselves and get moving. I am honored to introduce longtime friend of the show, frequent guest. It, of course, is Mr. Zabologist of It's True, all of it, a Star Wars podcast. Zabologist, once again, welcome back to the program. Great. Thanks once again for having me back. It's always good to be back so soon again. Absolutely. And uh, so what's super excited is we are going to talk about the truly stellar novel, probably if not my number one Star Wars novel, a top three, easily, Dark Disciple. And what's fun about this discussion is Zabologist is part of a, a network of people talking about this book across multiple shows. And I'm super happy that the Babble Bubble gets to be included in this conversation as we get to have his insights. So Zabologist, why don't you give a little framework of uh, how you recently uh, dived into this book and what it is you're talking about with it and who you're talking about, where we can hear your other analysis, uh, so on and so forth. Sure. So to start off with, the first time I read this book was in about 2016, 2017, I think, um, because I was buying university textbooks and I needed to make up the $60 or whatever it was to get the free shipping. And I was having a look around and this was $14 and I, oh wow. And then I bought it and I thought, oh, I can't read it cause I've got to study. So I got mm -hmm. into it in 2017 or so at the tail end of that year when I finally finished that master's degree. Um, now we are going to talk about it with Confersuations, myself and Dale from It's True All of It with Confersuations. We're going to ha probably have a double episode. Now, that's not going to happen until, say, I think by the time that happens, it's August. It'll probably be like our second anniversary, our 33rd um, episode. So mm -hmm. I'm sure this will be out heaps earlier than before we talk about it. I'm hoping to not focus on the same things with what I'll end up talking about it with them. I'm sure it'll be different, but... Because for some reason, Dale and I and Charles and Pat, who are from Conversations, Charles and Pat, they it got brought up in conversation and um, I told Dale I liked that book. So he read it because he Dale reads books. I don't read a lot of Star Wars books. Mm -hmm. He knew I liked that one. So he thought, well, if you like that, I'll read it and we can talk about it. And I went, great. So I just reread it recently. So it was refreshed and I decided, yeah, love to chat about it with you because... We're talking about two characters in the early 2000s, 2003, maybe, maybe I'm a little bit off of mm -hmm. the first time we saw Asajj Ventress in the first Clone Wars animated series before the computer animation, the cartoon one. Mm -hmm. And Quinlan Voss, the character who was in the um, expanded universe in about, yeah, I think 2003, he was very popular in the comics, mm -hmm. one of those, maybe we might talk about them in the future. Um, so that, that, that ties into what you're doing with your show, I guess, and prequels. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's so cool about Quinlan Voss is he was, you know, shown to us in a single scene, a passing shot in 1999 in The Phantom Menace. And it's yeah. just the classic example of the Star Wars fandom, seeing a character who they just think looks cool and deciding let's make something out of it, where there's a demand within the fandom within the viewership and the readership to say, let's make some comics about him. Let's try to put him in some shows. And, you know, the comics 
are of course wonderful and very fun. And his mm. little appearance in, uh, I think it's the what the hunt for zero when we have the yeah. the three D Clone Wars, the Dave Filoni Clone Wars. But this book is the one that finally allows us in a as main a stream wave as possible. You know the main canon literature line dive into Quinlan Vos, and this comes out in 2014. So this is years after. It takes mm. 15 years to really get him translated you know, as a primary focus character, not a support or not someone. And I don't mean to belittle the comics, but just pushed away into the comics. The comics just don't have the same wide readership as, say, the books do. And then with Asajj Ventress, I mean, she was a really cool ad in the 2D Clone Wars. And of course, we get to really see her character flushed out in the 3D Clone Wars. But it takes this novel to bring these two characters together, to bring their story some weight and a, a truly masterful end there and uh i like i said i i love this book and i'm very excited to talk to you about it and like i don't want to steal anything that you may be talking <laughs> with the conversations guys so maybe just rather than, than dive you know chronologically in order since you'll have a, a major podcast yeah. dedicated to that i'd rather like to talk to you about some themes that may yeah, strike sure. a particular way so for me the theme that most jumps out is that dark disciple really hones in on the hubris of the Jedi, in my opinion. You know, the fact that Kenobi mm. is worried about Quinlan tapping into the dark side. Now, just as a, as a basic gist here, the, the plot of it is that Quinlan Vos is selected by the Jedi Council to assassinate Count Dooku, and that in doing so, he needs to team up with Count Dooku's former apprentice and assassin herself, now a bounty hunter, Asajj Ventress. And, you know... The Jedi Council deciding let's assassinate somebody yeah. is so un-Jedi of them. And people have reservations and Yoda is just fully committed. Like this is the thing that we have to do. And, you know, it's, it's such a theme in in the prequels as we see the fall of the Jedi Order. And then what's referenced later in the sequels, you know, when, when Luke is teaching Rey about the Jedi, is the sheer hubris blinded them of everything that was going yeah. on. And I think this is a great example by that you know i think seeing how comfortable yoda is with oh okay go go assassinate this guy mm. oh it's okay sometimes you need to tap into the dark side to really understand the light and to get your mission done it's it's just ridiculous in my opinion that you know he's willing to go there it just feels very un yoda like um but mm. i think that that's important and you know this story is very closely tied to uh what george lucas had in mind you know this is not a total spinoff you know this is a this is a you know a brainchild of his the way he had this going this so i i love that what what are your thoughts on that yeah yeah a lot so just to start off with well number one yeah it was one of george's ideas and the ideas that this was going to be in episodes of the clone wars i'm not sure exactly what but it i think at the time you know we've got to animate his hair all this sort of stuff and um i'm thinking that was, you know, production costs and being 2008 and 2012 and whatever technology, I don't know. But the, it was just a thing of when they never got to fit it in. So they only got one episode of Quinlan Boss. So this ended up being some storyboards that ended up becoming a book and such a big book. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, when you're, when you're talking about number one, the assassination, it's, it gets in more depth with that, with what the Jedi Council are dealing with, mm -hmm. because, and look, I'm going to have to, 
obviously give spoilers because we're talking about this book, which is okay, I suppose. So is everyone <laughs> ready? Because I'm going to be talking about some of the end of the book, which relates to what Reed was chatting about. So switch off now. Okay. So yeah, they want, number one, they want to assassinate Dooku. And then later on, when um, when it gets all tricky with the whole Quinlan Voss going to to Dooku and sort of tapping into the dark side and and then, you know, then wanting to, at that stage, assassinate Quinlan Voss and, mm-hmm. and Dooku. Like, it was, it was like, no question. They were going to take him off to, to get murdered. Like, well, I'm sorry, to, to be, a, yeah, know, to be assassinated, to be killed. Like, look, they're too dangerous. Mm-hmm. So they hadn't done it yet. And then like the second time it's like, we just got to kill them on sight now. It's, it's got to that. And that's just sort of really not the Jedi way. And even mm-hmm. Mace Windu's involvement with it all. And or just even giving Asajj Ventress a pardon, and also it's it's not so much that it's also the fact of say the beginning of Star Wars. We got the New Hope. We got all this kids stuff. We've got Ewoks. What I grew up with this original trilogy. It's mm-hmm. sort of there is some grey areas, but it's quite simple in the goodness and the evil and the rebel mm-hmm. to do what's right, but. This just shows a lot of complication. Like we thinking it was just that one Jedi, Anakin, that's gone to the dark side, mm-hmm. but it's that whole, whole overcomplication mm-hmm. of what was happening. It's that this is the introduction to the Lost Twenty. Like Quinlan Boss was when I was reading the comics, and it was talking about the Lost Twenty, and mm-hmm. um, and I'm thinking, wow, and that was mentioned in a deleted scene or a deleted line. I'm pretty sure in um, Attack of the Clones. It is yes. Uh, Obi Obi Wan is visiting the and visiting I, the library. I, visiting the library, and Jocasta New is pointing to all the statues yes. of the Lost Twenty. Yes, uh, namely Count Dooku, which I think is one of the best deleted scenes in all of Star Wars. And just putting that in there for some, you know, exposition or like a, expository details to just kind of fill us in about Count Dooku a little bit more would have made that movie so much better. Yeah. In my opinion, I don't know why that was, there's so many deleted scenes in there that should belong a lot for Anakin and Padme's romance that they cut and him meeting Anakin, Padme's family. That's a different conversation altogether, but yes, the last 20 and you kind of almost agree with them, or at least like the ideals of why a lot of them left when you see that they didn't necessarily leave the order solely because they became dark Jedi like Count Dooku did. A lot of them were just frustrated with what the Order had become, you know. And I think going back to a conversation you and I have had in the past on a different Mm. show when we're looking at, you know, Ahsoka Tano, I mean, that's why she leaves. I mean, because the Jedi decide to become judge, jury, and executioner. And I think it's great that you mentioned the Asajj Ventress pardon. Who gave them the power to do that? She's a war... I mean, she's great. She's a wonderful character. Her... Spoiler alert, death stings mm. so much oh, in that book. Time. It's one of the hardest yeah. deaths in Star Wars I think you can interact with. But she's a war criminal. She's killed thousands of people. And the Jedi are like, oh no, she's pardoned. There's a whole governing body of people who ideally that, you know, yeah, sure, it's under the control of, you know, Darth Sidious and, and Palpatine. Mm. But there's plenty of good senators out there like Padme Amidala or Bail Organa or the whole, you know, Mon Mothma, the loyalist faction, all that group. And most, you know, it should fall under them. But so the Jedi are fulfilling the role of, oh, they're too powerful. I mean, they don't have that right 
to say your pardon. Nobody voted for them. They just happened to be a group of powerful magicians. And so it's easy to see how, you know, people even remotely tied into the Jedi could believe that come Revenge of the Sith, oh, they did something bad and tried to assassinate the Chancellor because clearly they look comfortable with assassinations these days. So it's not that far of a jump. Yeah, and it just it's just another example, like as you you brought up Ahsoka, and there's so much more, so many Jedi more, that this era, how it's not just, okay, Anakin, he, he became to the dark side. A lot, it's a lot more was going on in that. And uh, the fact that, yeah, pardons for sort of former Siths, but aside from that, it was good to sort of see how, I mean, we know, we learn for the people like Reed and I that have really watched The Clone Wars or really know the full story of Asajj Ventress uh, too, mm-hmm. which he mentions in the book too. There's a lot of um, re-remembrance to some of the callbacks of the episodes in this book, which is great because it's just reminding you about, if you watch those episodes, the development of that character and what they've been through. But mm-hmm. like number one, one of them when they went back to the episode when she put Boba Fett in the chest to sort of save that um young teenager to become a wife of somebody else she you know she Mm -hmm. that's sort of not like asajah's character but that was just sort of like a stepping stone and to now see that obviously wants that revenge on dooku but Mm -hmm. we do see that lightness that she's getting out of getting away from the dark this is something we don't really see like we see Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, we do well, look, we see Anakin go to the dark sky, we see Darth Vader, and okay, he just gets redeemed, sort of thing. But mm-hmm. we never see, we've never sort of seen too much of someone so much story, so much history of the development of, say, somebody like Asajj going towards the dark side mm-hmm. and then pulling back and coming back and mm-hmm. seeing the development of how kind of a good person or that they can be. So I just think it, it, it is exciting that finally, look, comics, and I can't even remember, it was so many years ago that I read, and maybe I might reread them and we might dwell into mm-hmm. it or something. But um, yeah, like, as you said, right at the beginning of this, we get to see so much more of this character that we mm-hmm. loved at the beginning, Phantom Menace. I never even noticed that until the figure came out or something, like, mm-hmm. which was years later. So, because it was just such a small... Mm-hmm. shot and then obviously i saw that character in the comics but i didn't realize that's where it came from in that shot from phantom menace so yeah yeah it's a uh, it, it's super cool and um you know the whole somebody toying with the light side moving towards the light when they're already in the dark that's mm. something that you know finally gets explored on the big screen with the kylo ren story that mm. we see. I mean, The Force Awakens, which I think is a lot better than... I mean, a lot of people, you know, say, oh, it's just a it's a, a New Hope clone mm. in a lot of ways. But I think it's the Kylo Ren story that most let it sp- spawns out of it because there's this whole idea of, like, he has... he's as a, as a villain, he's fighting the call to the light. He even says it that much, which is such an interesting reversal of the whole what we're used to thinking that, oh, you know, the light side is there. You are seduced by the dark side and you flip there. But the idea that he is seduced by the light and he's afraid of going back to it. And Mm. it takes killing his own father to bring him back to the dark side. That's a whole interesting, you know, thing there. Uh, And then of course he does end up 
you know, having a, a bit of redemption uh, by the time we get to, you know, the rise of mm. the rise of Skywalker, of course. And, and it's, it's funny because, you know, his redemption comes at the moment when Ray is at full, you know, fully there ready to kill him. She's defeated him that lightsaber duel on top of the old death star. She's got the blade right there and she just walks away. She heals. Mm. She heals him first. Mm. She and um, then walks away. And it's from that healing that he is able to, you know, and whether you want to get to how metaphysical is he already dead? Is it the force of is it the life force of his mother keeping him going? So on and so forth. But you know, Ray could have hacked him to pieces there, and she doesn't. And that I think shows the Jedi at its best. The Jedi choosing not mm. to deliver the final blow, not to kill. So we see, of course, you know, in Revenge of the Sith. Obi-Wan duels Anakin. Yep. Anakin is burning alive. Mm. Obi-Wan could have easily just finished the job right there, but he doesn't do that. You know, and of course he realizes he didn't succeed in killing, you know, Vader because Vader is, you know, around and about very clearly. And um, you know, whether or not that's a guilt trip for him. Uh Luke, of course, multiple moments choosing not to fight his own father in Return of the Jedi, mm-hmm. choosing to um just force project, not take down Kylo Ren in The Last Jedi, so on and so forth. The Jedi are not killers. That is the greatest moment in the Jedi order. But, of course, going back to this book, it's like, oh, no, we're, we're killers here. We're not just killers. We're straight-up assassins. And so, you know, yeah. that's when they move away from it. And that just, you know, it's. I think there's a classic. I mean, when you, you look at the, the best moments of the Jedi, this is one of the lowest moments, for sure, when they're, you know, let's go down there. And it takes... Like you say, a dark side user to help bring Quinlan Voss back because he yeah. turns so quickly. And yeah, there's the whole idea that, oh, oh, he's, you know, he's an agent undercover or something. And there's that whole excuse like, oh, you know, like, oh, I was, I was, I had to do those things in order to get to Dooku. But even he admits that he was seduced by the dark side greater than he mm. had initially led on in hope. And once again, the Jedi pardoned him too when he was <laughs> Admiral Enigma who did horrible mm. things. And not only is he pardoned, he still gets to be an active member of the war front. You know, he's still, he's on the front lines of Kashyyyk by the end of the Clone Wars, you know? So you would think after doing all this stuff, they would have been like, yeah. Quinlan, sit down. You, you went too far, but they're like, okay, buddy, you're, you're right back out there again. Because they're just so strapped for resources and, you know, someone of his talents that, and I feel sorry for him because he's just a pawn of the Jedi Order, and really, you know, he does all that stuff at their suggestion. And yeah, I, I imagine there's a lot of guilt. I do find that hard that connection, and I suppose I'm not sure what what the story is, what the rule is, or what it is. You know, when you have a deleted scene, then it's mm-hmm. not part of the movie; it's not canon or whatever. Because mm-hmm. I'm not sure, and I'm not. I don't worry. I don't care either way, but. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it's felt, oh, that didn't happen in the movie. So, like, maybe he didn't end up being part of the general. Maybe he's Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. But it is surprising if he if he was, that was part of it. Oh, well, I mean, well, actually, he is mentioned in the movie. Like, Voss has moved his troops to such and such. And mm-hmm. that's the first time I got excited. Oh, my gosh, they mentioned his name. He's so popular. Mm-hmm. I've been loving him. I'm glad. I wish we could see him. So, yeah, you're right. He's, he was actually... Just a part of it after all. Listen, this wouldn't have been that much long after anyway. Oh no, because it's it's very much towards the end of the mm. war. And you know, you think I mean, obviously a lot of a lot of police forces 
don't do this. And this is the source for a lot of consternation here in the United States, if not only abroad. When a police officer um, discharges his firearm in the line of duty, even if he kills, whether or not he kills somebody, but just mm-hmm. does it in, a, in, you know, in a manner responsible or not, they're supposed to be taken off the front line. You know, they're supposed to go into, mm-hmm. you know, a degree of, uh, you know, therapy or sessions with other people until, you know, the higher ups clear. Okay, you can go back, and because that's, I mean, the Jedi are peacekeepers. You know, they're not supposed to be warriors who can excuse themselves because oh we did it for the greater good no you're you can't fudge what the meaning of the greater good is and so i think i think it's really interesting and i'm sorry that we never get to see you know quinlan voss in his final moments where he's reflecting on everything that he had done Mm. up to that point and here he is still back in the um you know back in the battle it makes it you know he's such he's such an aware jedi of his surroundings and his ability to be in tune. What is it? Psychometry or uh, yeah, psychometry. Yes. That's yeah. Fine. Yeah. Where he can touch things and can yeah. tell stories. You would think that if any Jedi has the skills to survive order 66, it should be Quinlan Voss. He would have been able to pick up the clone troopers. He would have been able to, you know, feel what was going on around him. But I, you have to wonder, I mean, this is now just a hundred percent speculation uh, that because of the happenings in dark disciple, did that cloud his own judgment? Did that cloud, his force mm-hmm. abilities because of what was weighing on him. And that made him lower his guard that he was able to be, you know, easily assassinated by, uh, by the clone troopers. I don't know. Maybe that's just a little head cannon thing uh, for me to, yeah. <laughs> to sit on, but it's, it's kind of cool to th- figure out how you tie this into the rest of, of the story. Uh, but even if you don't, it's such a great standalone story. Dark disciple is the book I recommend to people. And like, if you want to read a very your very first Star Wars novel, read this one. It doesn't matter if you don't know the characters well. They do. They explain them all great. You know, I mean, you'll recognize if if you've only seen the movies, you'll recognize a few names, of course, because there's old Mace Windu and there's, you know, Obi Wan Kenobi and Yoda. And you don't have to have watched the Clone Wars to get mm-hmm. caught up on you know who's Quinlan Vos and who's Asajj Ventress. They they say it great, and I think it's it's a it is a it's a beautiful novel. Um, and one that I envy you for having read it a second time because I have not. And so I, I really, I, I really want to do that. Do you have any uh, parting thoughts on, on the book before we close out here? Yeah, just only a few. So please do read it again, because I remember when I read it again, I just, it just get me, gave me more depth. And I suppose, cause I was reading it and I knew I was talking about it. I took more reflection on it and enjoyed it that bit more. I did find it little bit long like because it was just such a huge story and I felt oh that was like this massive arc that could have finished there but it just went on and on and it, but mm-hmm. I, didn't, I don't mean in a boring way like it was like another sort of different type of story it did show the big story of of him and it did tie in with what had happened and it was a lot of it's unpredictable it's kind of interesting uh look I'll probably talk about it more with conversations and it's true of it all of it regarding the the relationship, how complex it gets between Asajj Ventress and Quinlis Voss. This is what probably makes the book a bit more interesting. But one thing, the main sort of thing, I, I'd be curious to bring it up with you is uh, I'm sure when I read it, it was interesting, like Ventress now has a yellow lightsaber. And I'm just curious, maybe not knowing enough that, you know, obviously when 
the Sith's lightsabers are red because apparently they're bleeding, like it's mm-hmm. to sort of show that you get bleeding towards the dark side. So it's that's why it goes red. They're, they're in tune with their uh, kyber mm-hmm. crystal. But this one's yellow, so I'm wondering, because she's pulled away now from the Sith, from her dark sideness, that it's mm-hmm. lightening up. So now it's in yellow. <laughs> I don't know. It's just... Yeah, I, I don't know if, if you can heal a lightsaber in, in that regard. But um, yeah. why is it yellow? I don't know. It was yeah, yellow. I, I think, was, yeah. Well, I I, if, I, if I recall, because I've, I've looked into this all plenty of times, um, you know, out of curiosity, I think that when you heal a lightsaber, I don't know if it goes, I think that's it, it becomes white. Anyway. So, um, I, and I don't remember if that was in the Ahsoka book or something like that. Or uh, yeah, I think it's in the Ahsoka novels because you know she has the the white lightsabers. Yeah. Not that, and I, I and I got I I didn't read all of that. This is just conversations with friends. But I think she she gets the white lightsabers because she heals the crystals from Inquisitors who are out to get her. But I don't know. I could be totally off that. Um, maybe there's the whole yellow thing or, you know, I mean, she's killed plenty of Jedi in her time. You know, there's no Mm -hmm. way Grievous was the only one out there collecting, Mm. you know, I wouldn't be surprised if she had some from times past and, you know, chose to abandon the red in favor for the yellow, um, as she just decided to further separate herself from the Sith, from Count Dooku, you know, kind of as a sort of an F you that getting the yellow lightsaber to move away from that and almost in process, you know, her identity grows to match the yellow lightsaber, you know, she, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg. I mean, the yellow, yellow lightsaber uh, blades are very interesting. There aren't many major examples of it. Uh, The biggest one that comes to mind is going back to the sequels. Ray has Mm. the yellow lightsaber at the very end of uh, the rise of Skywalker. And outside of that, I mean, I'm sure there's people who do. I mean, I yeah, I don't. I'm not sure. I can't remember anyone in particular outside of that. Maybe there's meant to be some parallelism there. It seems like uh, you know the Lucas Story Group has a good tie in there. That maybe something about yellow marks a kind of a new age, a new era, or something of growth. Yeah, um, growth, change. Yeah, Brian. You know. Yeah, new. I, I don't know. Yeah. It's a. Uh, it's it's cool to think about though. That's a good point you brought up. But I'll just say, like, which you brought up, like, Ahsoka's got the white ones because she's uh, cleared mm-hmm. um, or healed. Is that one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe she sort of has, but it's not gone completely white because she did, still did kill a lot of people. Or she's still. Yeah, maybe that too. Yeah. Money, so it's got a little bit maybe, of a leftover. Maybe, maybe yellow's like uh, green, blue, and purple or whatever. It's a rare one and it's a good one. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's all I've got. <laughs> I won't go. No, on no. I, 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 I think <laughs> it's great. It's a good, good thing to chew on, you know. Listeners, if you're if you're more tied into lightsaber colors and bleeding and all that jazz, you know, drop a comment at some point, you know, chime in on that because <laughs> I, I would want to know if, if there's a more thorough explanation. Um, well, Sabologist, thank you so much for joining the show as always. It is it's such a pleasure. Um, as stated earlier, you can find uh, him. At it's true. All of it. A Star Wars podcast. You want to drop your social media handles. Yeah, sure. Why not? Uh, you can find me at Bandcamp. You got Zabologist, and you've also got Such Great Lives. And if you search that in Google, it'll pop up. 
and you'll find some Star Wars songs like Ewoks waiting for episode seven and Nine Numb and many more. Wonderful stuff. Well, it's a pleasure as always, my friend. Thanks again. Cheers. Good night. Goodbye. Don't go far. Now is not the time to be running off. Yes, Father. Look, this next thing is something that I have toyed with for a very long time, and I've heard arguments on both sides. And that has to do with this... What is a better influence, a better launch of comic book movie? Sort of how the 21st century fascination with the comic book movie. People will oftentimes turn to the 2001 Brian Singer X-Men film. And then others will say, but it really didn't get quote-unquote good or moving until we had Sam Raimi's 2002 Spider-Man. And the fact that you had these two trilogies coming out around the same time, there was a lot of, you know, us versus them, people taking sides. There was playground arguments going on it for, you know, elementary and middle school kids where I was at the time these were coming out. And there was, you know, debates happening in online forums. And even as we, you know, sit here, two decades removed from the start of both of them, you know, there's people who are butting heads on what it is. And, you know, frankly, I, you know, I don't really quite necessarily like conversations of, oh, something is more influential than something else or something is better than something else. Because, yeah, maybe you can zoom out to a macro scale or you could try to have what are you know, objective toolings on what makes, you know, good-looking CGI, or what is a plot that's more put together, what hits more technical marks in terms of the act structure, so on and so forth. But, you know, and, and while I I just don't think that it's hard, it's hard to touch it. These are art forms. It affects different people in different ways. And I'm not saying this is a bad conversation to have, because here I am having it. However, I just think it's kind of fruitless. You know, I, I found a random poll online here where it said, you know, compare the Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy versus the original X-Men trilogy. And Spider-Man won it 69% to 31 And, you know, I think a lot of it comes from, you know, the fact people... They really didn't like uh, the third entry of the X-Men series versus the, uh, you know, the third entry of Spider-Man 3, which a lot of people also didn't like. I think it's kind of had a recent fan following of people kind of, you know, kind of liking where it's coming from. It's got, it's more memeable. You don't really see people memeing, you know, the X-Men stuff. So people get around that. Like, uh, Raimi Spider Memes is a very popular account on Instagram, and it points all to, or, or the YouTube account, Bully Maguire, where let's look at, you know, the mean Tobey Maguire Spider-Man that we see when he's got the Venom suit and all that jazz, and he's dancing down the street and just doing his own best thing. But both of those came out outside of the window that I'm focusing on here. So we're going we're gonna to remove that. And I just want to look at the first two and say, you know, which one do I, you know, prefer the most? And, you know, quite frankly, I was an X-Men guy through and through. That was not a knock against Spidey. It's just I love the X-Men movies, and I'm a big fan of Hugh Jackman. And, you know, I think if you want to talk about who ends up winning, if this is, has to be a versus like this, like people are, you know, insisting upon, I, I gotta go with X-Men because, you see, the launching of Hugh Jackman 
into the public sphere. And, you know, I oftentimes compare that, you know, this is coming out, and I actually, I don't know their age differences, but where I'm going to go with this, but, you know, the same time as, as the Star Wars prequels where we got to see another actor who I love, Ewan McGregor, and kind of compare Hugh Jackman and Ewan McGregor's rise in the you know, in popular culture, getting to experience with them. Obviously, they'd had some earlier stuff. We had seen Train Spotting with Ewan and Hugh Jackman had done stage performances. Uh, Hugh Jackman, born in 1968. Uh, Ewan McGregor, born in uh, 1971. So they're within three years of each other. So they're contemporaries. And the fact that these two films launched them respectively uh, was super cool. You know, Tobey Maguire, conversely, you know, we just never really saw much of him outside of the Spider-Man. Yeah, there's the great Gatsby and people like him, and that's not a knock on his talent. I don't know what personal choices are involved with this. Nonetheless, you know, Jackman's Wolverine really seeded it down. And I think that Jackman's Wolverine is more important than Maguire's Spider-Man in the sense that we're already on our third Spidey over the past, you know, 20 years. And, and it was even before that. It was, took about 15 years between getting Toby, Andrew Garfield, and then Tom Holland. But people see Wolverine as synonymous with Hugh Jackman, and I think that's a lot, you know, in terms of what the MCU came to, you know, we've come to expect, where you have an actor synonymous with their character and vice versa. The fact that Robert Downey Jr. is Tony Stark, is Iron Man, works perfectly. Chris Evans is Steve Rogers, but not is Captain America, because thanks to shows like Falcon and the Winter Soldier, we get to see that there are other, you know, instantiations of Captain America that work really well, just like we'll probably see versions of Iron Man or the Iron Family that work really well. And, you know, hopefully with Wolverine, in the MCU, when he pops up, it's not a recast, but maybe we can instead focus on X-23, who we see in the film uh, Logan. And so, you know, that's why I personally give a check mark more to the X-Men over the Spidey, because it's like you also were growing up with it more, because we kept seeing him, you know. That first one came out when I was six, and then Logan came out when I was in my mid-twenties. And so it's cool to have, you know, over 15 years, nearly two decades of the same person playing a character and that's why you know even though you break up the singer trilogy and then the days of the the ones with james mcavoy days of future past and everything and then logan on its own you know it's still of course all tied together into one franchise well you know spidey didn't have that so sorry mr webslinger but it's gotta be the mutants for me Come on, Ben, it's just a little fun. Oh, sure, we're having loads of fun, right? Look at us, no gold, no food, while Ratcliffe sits up in his tent all day, happy as a clam. And hello, it is August 27, 2021, Reed, checking back in with y'all. Uh, for those of you who have a uh, trained ear, or at least are familiar with uh, certain... Disney movies, you'll recognize that throughout this episode there have been spatterings of clips from 1995's Pocahontas. And that's for a reason. The final thing that I'm going to play a few today was a bit of an embarrassing, poorly thought out rant slash praise slash I don't even know what to truly call it of that film. And I just thought it'd be a good way to close things off. So uh, thank you again for joining on this weird retrospective of just thoughts and observations I've recorded by myself or with others 
and just kind of dropping it here as the show is crawling its way out back from the cave. It has been a tremendous pleasure, and I'm happy to once again be on your airwaves. Okay, everyone, strap in, because this is going to be a bit of a ride. It's going to be wild. It's going to be splashy. It's going to be all over the place, so you better not hold on to those cannons that pull you off the ship into the water, because, ladies and gentlemen, listeners of all genders, take a seat, because we're going to spend a moment here to talk about the movie Pocahontas. I haven't seen this movie in a long time, but it's always resonated with me, and I, I know it fits within the time period of the show, so it very much warrants a point of discussion, and so I'm just going to dive into this thing. Yes! I realize it's complicated and that a lot of it has not aged well and that it whitewashes a very tragic real-life event that they aged up Pocahontas so she could be hot to the white guy instead of being a 10-year-old. And also, spoiler alert, everybody, in real life, it is hotly contested that John Smith even was held captive Put, nearly put to execution, have Pocahontas swarm in and save the guy. That dude, John Smith, the real one, not the Mel Gibson voice one, which that's a complication in of itself right there. But, that being said, that dude, John Smith, notorious liar. When you read his memoirs, when you read his life stories, women are always lining up to save the guy. It gets him off, I guess. So the Pocahontas story is just probably another one of those. Plus, historians also say that the group of uh, Native Americans that captured John Smith would not have performed a, a ritual execution in the way that John Smith described. Or that Owl's portrayed in the movie, where he's brought up to the rock on the edge of a cliff, and Chief Powhatan's about to whack him in the head to death. That would not have happened. If anything, people have started to realize the ceremony, the ritual that John Smith was present for, was in fact going to be him being promoted as a chief of sorts, as a sub-chief. Because Pocahontas' father, Pocahontas' dad, was the chief of multiple tribes, the supreme chief of multiple tribes that spoke the same language in the Virginia Tidewater area. So he had multiple sub-chiefs under them. And it seems like he was offering to do that for John Smith as sort of a olive branch. Let me try to assimilate the English colony of Jamestown into my empire, so to speak. Using that very loosely, that's a post-Westphalian concept of empire, very European. He's not thinking that way, but that that's that. So anyhow, Pocahontas, complicated film. That being said, all those qualifiers aside, I love that movie. That movie is beautiful. And yes, I know it came out around the same time as many of the other Disney Renaissance films. And if you look at rankings online, this one frequently finds itself at or near the bottom. You know, well below The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Hercules, Mulan, The Lion King. The 11 films that fit that stretch is at the bottom, generally with Rescuers down other, under, which, spoiler alert, I like that one a lot, too. But Pocahontas ranks high for me. I like it more than Tarzan. I like it more than Hercules. I like it more than Little Mermaid. And I, I think that's just something that, as a history guy, I enjoy. 
And, you know, obviously I alluded to the fact that Mel Gibson's a very complicated person, by which I mean he's incredibly anti-Semitic, misogynistic, everything about him sucks. But in the 90s, we can just kind of rewind back at the 90s when Mel Gibson was the face of anything that was historical drama. You have Braveheart, comes out in 95 or 96. You have The Patriot, similar time period. So it's only fitting that he's John Smith. You know, 1990s movies taking place where you have, you know, historical colonies or something going on in Britain. You're going to put Mel Gibson in it, and he does great. Two, John Smith, the character, while in real life a total lying asshole, the character is totally awesome. You know, I mean, he has a wonderful save of his good friend Thomas, who isn't even really his friend at this point, just a guy on the ship, but John Smith cares about his crew. Epic swan dive off the boat in the storm, save the guy, Thomas, voiced by Christian Bale, and Thomas's hat. That's fantastic. It's, it's overwhelmingly beautiful and just etc. And the way they make his cheeks, his cheekbones and everything, it... Just top to bottom, brilliant execution of his appearance. Number two, the music. The music is so good. You know, I mean, we focus so much on the the two main songs to come around there, just around the river bend and Colors of the Wind. But all the ones interloped in there are fantastic too. Where they're about to go to war is so awesome. Where you see, well, this is what, you know, Jamestown settlers are singing. This is what the... The natives are singing and how there's, you know, different race, you know, different uh, musical cues that are interwoven there, drawing back to previous songs. That's the song that's plays towards the end of the movie. Uh, you know, the gold digging song, I think, is good. The one sung by other uh, by Grandmother Willow. And, and plus, yeah, don't beat up this film for historical inaccuracy when magic plays such a big role and is educate, you know, executed so awesomely. I mean, you have like the the town shaman, medicine man, etc., who's able to put that magic stuff in the flames and play out, this is what the settlers bring, and it's haunting, it's spooky. Grandmother Willow's a talking tree, okay? So don't be like, ah, oh, John Smith should have had a Falstaff beard and mustache. Why is he clean-shaven? Well, why is the tree talking? You know, so there's that to consider, too. Uh, yeah, but I think it's it's a good movie, and like I said, I'm missing some details, but I, I just wanted to just kind of go off on it for a moment. And, you know, I, if, if this ranks towards the bottom of your Disney Renaissance films, that's fine. That is your choice. But like I said, for me, it's up there. I'd say it's on, under maybe just The Lion King. And then it's Pocahontas number two. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, but that's just the case. And it's complica it's complicated, it's complex, it's aged poorly, but it means something to me. Visually stunning, musically great. Oh, also it has the greatest closing credits song. A lot of people don't focus on this song because it's not sung by the cast. It's not in the movie, but the closing credits song, check it out. Highly recommend it. It's got that great 90s romance feel, you know, just like when you listen to the soundtrack is Space Jam. Like, this captures the 90s. This captures my youth. I love it. It's great. I'm probably going to go watch it right now and confirm and if i end up hating it then i'll release another episode where i say how wrong i was but i don't think i am because this is my subjective take <laughs>